On this episode of the Discover the Word podcast, Daniel Ryan Day wants Marte Hahn and Lisa Morgan and Bill Crowder to explore with him what at first seems like a pretty simple question. Why did Jesus come? And it does deal with a fairly simple foundational issue. But I think we'll discover some surprising ways in Scripture that Jesus answers that question. Would it surprise you to find out that he actually tells us quite a few times, I came <laughs> to da-da-da-da-da? To da-da-da-da-da. Um, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I said da-da-da-da. That's that like might the, surprise The radio me. version yeah. of fill in the blank. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, literally several times throughout the Gospels, Jesus says the phrase, I have come to. So this week, I thought it'd be kind of fun. Let's look at some of those places and the stories and see what we can learn about why Jesus came. Yeah, your spot is available at the table with them. And so pull a chair up and let's have some conversations about why Jesus said he came on this Discover the Word podcast. And this is Discover the Word, the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. We've titled this edition of the podcast, Why Did Jesus Come? And our hope is that it's going to be a memorable hour for you as Daniel guides Mart and Elisa and Bill to five locations in the Gospels where Jesus makes that statement, I came to, and actually says more than da-da-da-da-da-da-da. <laughs> so let's join them at the table as Daniel lays out for the group the plan for this conversation as we look at some of Jesus' sometimes surprising answers to that seemingly basic question question for you. Why did Jesus come into the world? To save, to rescue is another way we've talked about it. Yeah, in that same line, Elisa, he said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Mm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he came to reveal the Father. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Would it surprise you to find out that he actually tells us quite a few times, I came <laughs> to da-da-da-da-da? To da 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 da. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I said da 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 da. That's that like might the, surprise the radio me. version yeah. of fill in the blank. Uh, <laughs> so, um, but yeah, literally several times throughout the Gospels, Jesus says the phrase, I have come to. So this week, I thought it'd be kind of fun. Let's look at some of those places and the stories where Jesus says those words, I've come to whatever, and see what we can learn about why Jesus came. There's actually eight unique places where Jesus says that phrase or something similar to it. We only have space for five for our conversations this week. One of the ones I'm skipping because we spent a lot of time on this in a different series is where Jesus says, I've come not to bring peace, but division. Um, And we did a whole series on, does Jesus really want me to hate my family? Which if you want to dive deeper into that one, I would encourage you to go back and find that on the website. But I want to start with today's passage of Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. And so let's go ahead and just read this passage, and then we'll jump into the context. Elisa, would you read that for us? You bet. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, thank you for that. So where did we hear that phrase, I have come to? I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. Yeah. Not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Yeah. So what is the context for this passage? Well, this is in the Sermon on the Mount. Mm -hmm. which is Jesus is kind of 
kingdom constitution, some people have called <laughs> yeah. it. That's a great he, phrase, Bill. Yeah. <laughs> where yeah. he kind of maps out what living in his kingdom looks like. When you read what he said in describing the kingdom, it doesn't seem like a list of laws at all. Mm. You know, whereas yeah. the, the passage just read makes it sound like he's going to take us back to Sinai. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of a surprising set of teachings from Jesus because oftentimes it's kind of like the opposite of what we'd expect throughout this whole sermon. So, you know, it starts focusing on those who are vulnerable and weak and lonely, broken people. And Jesus says that the kingdom of God belongs to people like this, mm-hmm. which already is kind of shocking to us because we're used to like, kingdoms or power or money or influence being to those who have it all together or at least look like they do on the outside. And yet Jesus Mm -hmm. starts in a very different place. He also talks a lot about don't be stressed or anxious, don't worry, Mm -hmm. and suggests his followers love their enemies in this section, which Mm -hmm. feels the opposite of what we would expect. Mm -hmm. And so it just goes on and on throughout this section to almost flip what we would expect on its head. Is that kind of what you're talking about, Mark? Oh, yeah. And the text you had us read, uh, you talk about shocking. There's a sense in which that sounds shocking. Yeah. Yeah, And I think for us, it sounds a little bit shocking, but I can't imagine how shocking it must have felt to the first hearers, the people that were sitting around that hillside as Mm -hmm. Jesus was teaching. And I mean, they all knew from life experience the impossibility of fulfilling the law. And Jesus says, that's what I'm here to do. I'm here to fulfill yeah. this thing, to fill it to its fullest. And mm-hmm. you're right, Mark, that sounds shocking to us, but how much more shocking must mm-hmm. it have sounded to them? Yeah. Do you think they might have interpreted, I'm here to, well, he said, I come not to abolish, but to fulfill, but because that sounds so preposterous, do you think they really did hear abolish, do away with the law? Because all the examples, especially Daniel, that you just unpacked for us, that he talks about, they're so counterintuitive to the law, you know, that, that it's yeah. the vulnerable who are blessed, that it's, you know, the, it's all about not worrying. Well, how can you not worry if you're trying to fulfill the law? You know, do, do you think that might have been part of what shocked them and concerned them? Probably. I do think right after that section, Jesus says, for truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of the letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So there is this sense in which it's not a pulling out an eraser and wiping it away. It's almost like Jesus is bringing some nuance to the law that maybe they hadn't seen before. And it's that nuance that would be, wow, this is an interpretation we haven't heard before. This feels very different. And, you know, if you think about just rabbis in that culture, a lot of them, what they would do is they would take the Old Testament law and they would expound on it and they would bring nuance to it and they would teach it kind of from their point of view. And then their disciples were those who kind of learned their point of view and then tried to follow the law based on how that rabbi would teach them. Mm -hmm. And so we see Jesus kind of following a formula that the people would have expected, which is, hey, you've heard it said, I tell you. Not a foreign phrase to them. But it's the way Jesus is nuancing it that is really mind-blowing. And also the fact that when people heard it, they said, he doesn't teach like other rabbis. I mean, mm-hmm. there was something, yeah. something so authoritative about his manner that they said, he teaches like somebody who really has authority, not just somebody who's regurgitating somebody else's ideas. Right. Yeah. And Daniel, when you talk about nuancing the laws, mm-hmm. what do you mean nuancing the law? I think maybe helping people understand the heart behind the law or the spirit of the law or how to live it out is kind of what I mean by nuancing. And that's why I think those phrases that Jesus uses throughout his teachings of, you have heard, but I tell you, Mm -hmm. oftentimes that follows with, you've heard this law. Here, let me help you understand a little bit more of what that could look like in your everyday life. So I think that's kind of what I mean by nuance. Yeah. And somehow this is going to have to make sense because when, after Jesus leaves, his apostles and the writers of the New Testament say, you know, the law kind of is a past thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's some sense in which yeah. it's been taken away. 
Well, and if you go back to how we started this conversation with why did Jesus come, (laughs) this isn't the first thing that rolls off our tongues. You know, we think he he did come to abolish it. We think he came to give a new covenant, a new way to live. Um, But understanding that he came to fulfill the law changes its weight and the impossibility Mm -hmm. of it. Well, isn't it there's a sense here, Daniel, that he came to fulfill the law on our behalf because we couldn't fulfill it. So what we could never do, he did for us. I think that's a huge part of this. But now I want to throw a curveball to you oh, because, <laughs> and this is going to be really helpful for those. I of never us who could hit curveball. <laughs> I just could. Yeah, this is going to be helpful for those joining us at the table because if they think that we always get interpretation right, mm-hmm. uh, I'm going to share how I got this wrong. Um, so. I worked through these scripts. I wrote some outlines for us that we could kind of, you know, build this conversation on or whatever. I've reviewed it several times. Yesterday, I sit down and I'm like, you know what? I just want to go over it one more time and see. (laughs) And I realized that I missed a few of some of the most important words in this. And so I'm going to reread the beginning of this section and I'm going to emphasize those words. And I think this is going to help us with this too. So Matthew 5, 17 Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now, in the New Testament, what is that shorthand for the whole Testament? It's the law and the prophets. Mm -hmm. And so usually when that phrase is used, especially when Jesus uses it, what he's talking about is like the whole story of the Old Testament. So how does that change how how we now see this? Well, it goes back to what we've talked about so many times on the program, Daniel, that all of the Bible is telling one story, and that story culminates in the person of Jesus and why he came. And so he came to fulfill all not just the law, but all the Old Testament, because it was all pointing toward him anyway. Yeah. So we're dealing with meaning rather than structure, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. fulfillment of, you know, the promises of the intent of God's provision, you know, of the whole story, it, bringing it to the conclusion, the, the conclusion that's always been designed for us. Yeah. And so, so much of the way I set this conversation up was like built on a faulty idea, which is that <laughs> this is all about just the law. And it's about so much more than mm. the law. And I, I could so not helpful. believe I missed this yesterday. I literally walked down the hall into Brian's office and I was like, Brian... You're not going to believe what I missed in this whole <laughs> section, these really important words or the prophets. And so I think what Jesus is pointing us to in this section is so much more than just looking at a law and how to fulfill it and nuancing it or helping explain it, all of which he does in the Sermon on the Mount, right? And all of that is important. And we were half right in most of our conversation, which is exactly what Bill's point was, which was Jesus is showing us this law that we could never fulfill, and he is fulfilling it to kind of show us what it looks like to be truly human, to truly live into our potential as human beings, as God's created us to be. And he's the only one that can do that. But there's also so much more that's happening in this passage. And that is that Jesus is saying, I want you to look back. Here's the Old Testament, the law, the prophets. I have come to fulfill this story that's been happening in the Old Testament scriptures. And so when Jesus says that phrase, I have come not to abolish, to fulfill, why did Jesus come? He came to fulfill the story of the Old Testament. And that's a surprising twist that really does change how we think about why Jesus said he came. We so often stop at the law and spend most of our time thinking about how Jesus fulfilled that. But the statement makes more sense when you just read what's there, the law and the prophets. That's the whole Old Testament story. Jesus came to continue and complete that. That's a good start to our conversation about the question, why did Jesus come? And exploring some statements Jesus made in the Gospels that directly address that question. And so now let's go to another one that adds another piece to his stated mission and coming which had to have been surprising to those who first heard him say it. And actually, it's still surprising to us today. Do not answer this out loud. 
What if we want to? (laughs) (laughs) Still don't. (laughs) Who are the people that you feel are beyond God's love or God's ability to reach them? Mm. (laughs) Now I know why I can't say it out loud. Okay. Who are the people that if you saw Jesus hanging out with them, you'd be really surprised? Can I text my answer to you? No, I don't want to know. (laughs) (laughs) And the reason for that is, right, is because if we were to reveal that, it just could be unkind for anybody that would hear it and find themselves in that boat. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know what happened to me? It's interesting. The first question, I had one response. When you asked the second one, it really changed it for me. Yeah, so the who are the people that if you saw Jesus hanging out with them, you'd be really surprised. Yeah. So here's maybe an easier way to unpack this so that we can all actually talk (laughs) in in this. What is it about people sometimes that make it surprising to think that Jesus might want them for his followers too? Maybe that's a different way to, to ask that. Well, they slash we (laughs) are so needy and Mm -hmm. short-tempered and icky at times and selfish. I I have some good moments, but, you know, inside, who I am in the dark kind of a thing. Ew. mm -mm. Why would Jesus want to be around me? Yeah. Yeah, I think you're probably being a little bit more honest than most of us would be when facing these questions, because most of the people that we would include in the category of being surprised to see Jesus wanting to have a relationship with him are people we think are worse than us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And okay. uh, yeah. we kind of use ourselves as the normal or right, even though deep down inside we know we're not right, we kind of use ourselves as the standard and people that are a lot worse than us, that's who we would lump in those categories, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, what happened to me is I could imagine on the first question, seeing people who are really messed up and really hurting. And that wouldn't surprise me so much. But if I think of what the people that I consider to be religiously arrogant, Mm -hmm. they're the ones that if I saw Jesus hanging around with them, that would really surprise me. Yeah. You know what I mean? It it just flipped it for me for some reason. Hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So maybe in that situation, it would be because of what those people believe about God, about life, about the way that we should live, about how God works in the world. I can also think of like people because of the life choices they've made. It would surprise me to see Jesus wanting to hang out with them, maybe because of some of the places he'd have to go to hang out with them, or maybe because of the way people look or dress. We might think, ooh, I don't think Jesus would want to probably be seen with them. Mm. And maybe just because they're really different than us. And so it surprises us to think that Jesus would be able to spend time with people that are so different from who we are, to Bill's point, because we see ourselves as kind of the litmus test of of who Jesus hangs out Mm -hmm. with. And so it would surprise us in that way. What's interesting is we think about the phrase that Jesus uses where he says, I have come to da-da-da-da-da, and da-da-da-da-da is just fill in the blank in audio world since we can't actually show a fill in the blank, is that Jesus was often accused of hanging out with all the wrong types of people. I mean, that is throughout the whole story of the Gospels. Mm. In fact, the religious leaders of the day end up concluding that Jesus wasn't the Messiah because he hung out with who they thought were all the wrong types of mm. people. Mm-hmm. And so just right there, we've all admitted that there are certain people that we would be surprised to see Jesus hanging out with. That almost puts us into the like category of religious leaders. Kind of does. We, as we kind of approach yeah. this. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so I want to read this next passage, and Jesus is going to say he's come to hang out with certain kinds of people. And so listen for that phrase, I have come to... So this is Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. And Bill, could you read that for us? Sure. Matthew 9. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. All right, so Mark, did you hear that in there? Why did Jesus say he came in this passage? 
Yeah, for those really broken. Yeah. So first, as we think about just the context for this passage, this story is about Matthew. What gospel does it show up in? (laughs) Matthew. (laughs) The gospel attributed to Matthew, which is interesting. What are the circumstances here of Matthew's call to follow Jesus or his invitation to follow Jesus? He is a hated collaborator of the Romans. Um, He's collaborating by collecting Roman taxes and making himself wealthy by uh, using that authority to rob from his countrymen. And so he's basically a traitor. So he is Jewish by birth, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's easy to miss and find this as an unlikely pairing, tax collectors and sinners, because in our culture, you know, the IRS, whatever, you know, we don't we don't understand the cultural nomenclature mm-hmm. of this label, a tax collector. It, it like Bill said, he was despised. He was um, unethical. You know, mm-hmm. a traitor, um, a sinner. It's the same thing as <laughs> a sinner. Yeah. And where is he when Jesus calls him? Sitting at he's the at tax work. booth. Yeah, he's working. yeah, he's at work. Yeah. Which I, I just every time I get distracted at this point when I'm reading this story because I'm like, okay, first of all, was this just a chance meeting? Like Jesus had to be happened to be walking by, and was thinking to himself, you know, I need a tax collector on my team, someone <laughs> to work on our books, and you know, stuff like that. And then like Matthew. He literally just walks away or are we missing some of the story where he like first locked up the money and like gives it to somebody or did he literally just like walk out of the tax booth and start following Jesus? We don't know, but I always just find that part of it funny because Jesus finds him doing his trader work, Mm -hmm. his taking advantage of people work Mm -hmm. and invites him to follow him. And it says that he got up and followed Jesus, which is pretty Mm -hmm. It's kind of powerful when we put it in that context of it's what very he's doing. powerful and and it's shocking. You know, we look at Matthew later in his life and read words that you know God used him to put down in telling the story, but to stop right here and as stark a contrast as you just described, Jesus picked him. Follow me. Mm-hmm. You're talking about how unlikely would that be, not just to hang out with him, but to pick him to be a disciple, a, yeah. a, mm-hmm. one of the twelve. And it gets even more interesting when you remember that another one of the people that Jesus picked was Simon the Zealot, who the Zealots were a group that were looking for the violent overthrow of Rome as Israel's oppressor. I mean, they were kind of like first century terrorists who would do anything to overthrow the Roman government that Matthew was doing everything he could to support. And so now these two yeah. guys have to coexist in Jesus' <laughs> group. Yeah. And, and yeah. the fishermen, they weren't regarded as religious scholars. No, not really. Right. <laughs> yeah. So when we think about this context and just the shocking moment for Matthew of hearing Jesus invite him to follow Jesus, it's no wonder that later in Matthew... Matthew describes Jesus as a friend of tax collectors in Mm. chapter 11, verse 19. So Jesus literally becomes this friend of tax collectors and sinners. So just kind of a few details about what's going on here. So that phrase, tax collectors and sinners, is grouped together pretty often in the Gospels. It often refers to those who have either broken the Pharisaic rules of conduct, but it also kind of groups in a bunch of people like prostitutes, tax collectors, disreputable people, those who are not following the Jewish customs and Jewish laws the way that they should be. And so it's kind of a catch-all for for those types of people. It's also interesting, we talk a lot about this being a different kind of culture than ours. Notice that the question that the Pharisees ask is out loud to the disciples, why does your teacher do this? And so there's a little bit of an honor-shame contest happening here as well, because we talked about how in an honor-shame culture, if you really want to learn from someone, you talk to them behind the scenes. And then here we have kind of an out loud question happening. Yeah. Um, the public nature of the confrontation is what makes it the shame honor thing, right, Daniel? Yeah, yeah. And so they're yeah. trying to to take away credit and honor from Jesus and lift themselves up as those who are rightly living with that okay. honor. So increasing their honor, taking Jesus's honor down. But in Jesus's response, he quotes Hosea six six which I think is interesting. And I have that there in the notes, uh, Elisa, if you would read that for us. So they say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
And Jesus responds by quoting Hosea 6.6. Yeah, Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. But Hosea 6.6 says, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And so Jesus uses the word mercy here from the Greek, but the quote is Hosea 6.6, which says steadfast love. And what do we know about that word from many, many, many conversations that that we do on Discover Word? It's that hesed that beautifully steadfast love. Yeah. And Bill, you've led us through a series talking about how this is how God himself in the Old Testament introduced himself to Israel as this God of steadfast, loyal love. And so Jesus's response to the Pharisees is, of course, I would be friends with them because I'm a God who loves them, which just brings a whole new level Mm -hmm. to this story too. Mm -hmm. And you talked in a previous conversation, Daniel, about how a rabbi would have a certain teaching that would kind of be identified with them and their followers would take that teaching and try and live it out. Later in Jesus's public ministry life, when a religious leader asks him, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, Mm -hmm. love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, the guy responds, that's right, because that's greater than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices together. Mm -hmm. So some of that was sticking. Mm. Yep. So when we think about the question, why did Jesus come? And we put these first two conversations together. Jesus came into the world, not just to fulfill the law and the prophets. So the Old Testament story, but he also came to love and to bring healing to those who can't fulfill the law and the prophets on their own, the tax collectors and sinners. And instead of keeping those sinners at a distance, Jesus draws close to them and eats with them, caring more for their healing than even his own reputation. And so I think in that same way, Jesus does the same for us too, as we admitted kind of at the beginning of the conversation, or at least Elisa did, (laughs) that we're broken (laughs) people um, in need of Christ's love. He draws close to us too. So why did Jesus come? Well, Mm -hmm. he came to become a friend of sinners, and that means he's our friend too. A great reminder that that's all of us. We're all sinners in need of a savior, and Jesus came to be a friend of sinners and to seek and to save those who are lost. Well, this is Discover the Word, the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries. And you're at the table with Mark DeHaan, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day. And next, we're going to see how the theme of family resemblance enters into this discussion about why Jesus came. Now, do you look more like your mom or your dad? Do you act more like one of your parents? And is that good, or do you not really like that all that much? Well, family resemblance and why Jesus came. That's where we go after a quick time out for a word about another Our Daily Bread Ministries resource. Now, while we're discovering what Jesus said about why he came to earth, I also want to point you to another resource from Our Daily Bread Ministries. It's a film series called In Pursuit of Jesus. It's hosted by Rasul Berry, who is a member of our Discover the Word team. And in this seven-episode In Pursuit of Jesus video film series, Rasul travels to places around the world and asks a really similar question to what we're talking about this week. He asks, who do you think Jesus is? He and our film crew went to Singapore and Sweden and South Africa and Argentina and Israel and New York City. And the result is a great series called In Pursuit of Jesus. And we have a link to connect you with it on our discovertheword.org website. Just scroll down till you see In Pursuit of Jesus there at discovertheword.org. Rasul discovered that because they're made in his image that there is something everyone in the world can teach me about who Jesus is. And I think you'll discover that too when you watch In Pursuit of Jesus. Again, we have a link on our discovertheword.org website, or you can go to our new media hub at odb.org media and search for In Pursuit of Jesus. And now let's see how this idea of family resemblance is part of the answer to why did Jesus come? When was the last time you used the phrase or a phrase like it? She or he is the spitting image of... 
<laughs> fill in the blank. I don't think I've ever used that phrase. <laughs> oh man, is my southern showing? No. <laughs> yeah, it's it's I think about my grandkids. My youngest one, he looks like his dad and his mom and he has a lot of their mannerisms and yeah. you know their little phrases that he picks up from them. So yeah, yeah. I went to my grandkids too, Elisa. Only I wasn't thinking so much about physical appearance as I was attitudes because <laughs> we have three sons who have sons. And each one of them, every now and then, I'll see one of them channeling their dad. And I think, there he is. Yeah. <laughs> yep, yep. It's hard for us to see ourselves in our kids, though, I think. Mm. <laughs> I do, you know, if they do something that's like me, I probably think, oh, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you guys are making so much sense. I get it. Now. I was tripping over the word, spitting them it. <laughs> oh. oh, I see. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's the phrase we use down in North Carolina there, Mart. So. And West uh, Virginia. <laughs> and West Virginia. <laughs> yeah. You might say a chip off the old block. It is interesting to me when I meet someone and then meet their child and uh -huh. can see without a doubt mm -hmm. that yeah. they are so-and-so's kid, especially when it's not just because they look like their mm -hmm. parent, but because of the way they act too. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's really funny too, sometimes when you're interacting with a, a family that has multiple kids and you can see like, oh, that kid is a lot like his dad and that kid is a lot like mm -hmm. her mom or his mom. And so you can even see like the, the character qualities and the attitudes and the perception on life kind of filtering from one parent to another kid which is kind of fun too. As we consider the different places in the scriptures where we see Jesus say, I have come to da, 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 da. We're going to look at two places in the gospel of John, John chapter five and John chapter six, where Jesus is going to say he came to be, sorry for this, Mark, the spitting image of his dad. And uh, I'm going to Google it. <laughs> yeah, and how, so, about, how about mirror image? There yeah, like mirror I think image. that works. Yeah, yeah that works. <laughs> probably pretty similar. So before we jump, somebody go ahead and look up John 5, 43, and we'll read the first half of that verse in just a second. Before we do, I just want to give a little bit of context for what happens in John chapter 5. And what's interesting is in the Gospel of John, there are seven signs mentioned throughout the book of John that all kind of point to Jesus being who he said he was, is kind of the main point. So that he really is the Messiah, that he really is who he said he was. And so this sign in chapter 5, this healing at the pool of Bethesda, is sign number 3. Are we following so far? So seven signs throughout the book of John. Each sign is trying to show, okay, Jesus really is who he said he was. Chapter five, sign three, healing at the pool of Bethesda. Oh, okay. 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 So Jesus does this healing at the pool of Bethesda. What is the response to the healing at the pool of Bethesda by the religious leaders? They react against it because it was on the Sabbath day. Yeah. And Jesus, by healing this man, was violating the Sabbath and then encouraging the man to violate the Sabbath. Yeah, by carrying his mat. Bill, if somebody if somebody says, how did he violate it? What would you say? Well, again, it was against Sabbath law to do any work. And they saw Jesus doing a healing as a work. And then the man that he healed had a pallet or a portable bed. Jesus told him, get up, take up your bedding and walk. And by the act of physically picking up and carrying something, that would have been considered work on the Sabbath. Okay. And so as a result of this, the religious leaders, not only do they decide like he's not the Messiah, but they want to kill him as a result of this story. And so it's a pretty strong reaction to that. But what's interesting is what does Jesus say in 517? He says, my father is still working and I'm also working. So even this thing that I'm doing is a picture of the father. And then that kind of becomes a theme throughout this chapter. In verse 18 and in verse 30, Jesus says the son can't do anything but only what the father does. In verse 20 of chapter five, the son and father have a special bond of love. In verse 37, the father testified that the son is the real deal through an audible proclamation, this is my son. And verse 36, the father's testified that the son's the real deal through the works that he's given Jesus to do. And all of this leads up to chapter 5, verse 43. Mart, if you could read chapter 5, verse 43, that would be great. Okay, Jesus says, I, I have come in my father's name. And you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. So 
Jesus says that phrase, I have come, and what did he come? In my Father's name, like representing his Father. And what's interesting, Daniel, is back in verse 18 that you mentioned, when it says the Jews were seeking to kill him, it wasn't only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but also because he was calling God his Father and claiming to be equal with God. So they were getting the message. They just didn't like the message they were getting. They thought it was Mm -hmm. blasphemous, right? Yes, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Yeah. And so we turn to John chapter 6, and it gets even more intense. <laughs> so, so we have sign number 3 in John chapter 5, this healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. Signs 4 and 5 that Jesus is really who he says he is happen in chapter 6. And that is Jesus feeding the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water. And what's interesting is in this passage, look, we're talking about signs, and there's a reason for that, because, Bill, will you read chapter 6, verses 30 and 31? Notice what they're asking for here. Okay, so in John six thirty to 31, the religious leaders say, what sign are you going to give us then so that we may see it and believe you? What work are you performing? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Yeah, so it's interesting. John is building his gospel around these seven signs that show Jesus is who he says he is. And what's the very thing that people are asking him to do to prove that he is who he says he is? They're asking for a sign. They're asking for a sign. So they make this statement about in the Old Testament, God gave us manna. And Jesus, how does he respond to that? What does he declare about himself? I am the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. So one of the I am statements in John, I am the bread of life. But what's interesting is their response to this in verse 36 is rejecting Jesus again. And so Mm -hmm. what we see is we see a sign. We see Jesus inviting them to accept who he really is based on his father saying that this is my son, this is the real deal, this is the Messiah. And the response often in each of these examples is rejection as a result. Some believe and some reject. And that brings us to verses 38 through 40 of John chapter 6, if somebody could read that for us. You know, before we do it, what I'm confused about is, you know, Jesus had already fed them with bread, right? He had multiplied them. Mm -hmm. And yet now they're asking for bread as a sign. Yeah. Mark, What's wrong with them? Yeah. (laughs) To me, one of the biggest questions that I've been struggling with as I've thought through this, and I don't have a good answer for yet, but I'll just go ahead and throw it out here because you brought it up, is why would they still reject him after seeing all these signs? Yeah. And that, I can't get my head around that question. Mm -hmm. Right. Once you've decided what you're not Mm -hmm. going to believe, no amount of evidence is going to change your mind. Well, I've definitely had conversations where that's That seems to be playing out here, doesn't it? Yeah, Mm -hmm. it sure does. I'm sorry I interrupted you, though. No, that's that's helpful. Um, So let's go, let's look at this second I have come statement. So John chapter 6, verses 38 through 40, and this is in the context of that question, which is they're still rejecting him, even though they've seen a lot of this witness Mm -hmm. for who he is. Elisa, would you read that for us? Yes. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This is indeed the will of my Father, that all who see the Son and believe in him may have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. Yeah. So in this very beautiful passage, we see Jesus describing not just the reason he came, but the very will of the Father. Mm. And the will of the Father is to raise Jesus from the dead. And then that resurrection spreads, not just from Jesus, but to all those who believe in him and offer eternal life to the world. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Like that's the reason that Jesus came is to represent the heart of his Father, which is this resurrection life that God offers. And what is their response to this I have come statement? They were grumbling about him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so there's this sense of rejection again. And then what's amazing is look at John chapter 7 right after this section. Even Jesus' brothers reject him. And so we see this building of Jesus saying over and over and over again, why have I come? I've come to represent the heart of the Father. And so as we kind of pull this together, the three conversations we've had so far, Jesus came into the world not only to fulfill the story of the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, not only to become friends with sinners, 
but also to introduce the world in a very physical, real sense to the heart of God, his Father. What is God like? Well, let's look at Jesus and we get a picture of what God is like. He's a God who heals, a God who provides. All of these signs that Jesus are doing, he can't do this without the Father giving it to him to do, is what he said. So it's a God who heals, a God who provides, a God who undoes the worst that life throws at us, including death. Because ultimately, through Jesus, this is a God who brings true life. And we know about this God because Jesus came into the world to reveal him to us. Were you scared of the dark as a kid? If so, why? Yes. (laughs) And I could give you several reasons, but one of the big ones was when I was a kid, I delivered newspapers and... There were two streets that I had to deliver papers to, and they were connected by an old, old, old graveyard. And I had to deliver the papers at about 3 o'clock in the morning, which meant at about 3.30 in the morning, I had to walk through that graveyard in the dark at night. And that just scared the daylights out of me. Daylights. (laughs) (laughs) Into the dark. You know, this is a little bit heavy. I don't remember being afraid of the dark as a child, but I do remember as a young adult when I first began to discover Satan, that there was a real enemy in our world. And at night, I felt like I needed to kind of do battle with him. And I grew in my faith a lot because I learned that God is much stronger and more powerful. But I can remember a season when darkness would scare me in that way. Mm. It's interesting because I was thinking the same thing. I don't remember being afraid of the dark as a child, but I do as an adult, depending Ah. on where I was in the darkness of a city, you know, Mm -hmm. at night when Mm -hmm. I was not familiar. Or I remember getting lost in the woods as an adult in the dark, Mm. you know, in the early morning before the sun came up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As a kid, I grew up on quite a bit of land, and I had also been learning about gray wolves. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I remember being pretty scared. I would have to go shut the horses in for my mom at night and the cows and the chickens and all that. And so I would sprint as fast as I could from the barn back to the house at night because I was afraid I was going to get attacked by wolves, which (laughs) of course that wouldn't help because wolves are faster. But that's okay. In my little brain, I thought if I ran fast enough. Um, but Apparently rec- it worked. Yeah, that's right. They never got me. Um, so a few weeks ago, my wife and I were sleeping in bed. And it was about 3.30 in the morning. And we heard something and looked up to find a bat in our room no. flying right above our head. Mm-hmm. And I had to go get a net and I like sprinted out of the room. See, the wolf training was good. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I had to sprint out of the room and go get a net and catch it. And do you know that still to this day, every night at about 3.30, I wake up in the morning and then have a hard time going to sleep because it's so yeah. shaping yeah. those sure. types yeah. of things. Sure. We had, a, in one of the homes we lived in, we had a lot of problems with bats and we were fighting those things all the time. <laughs> I wasn't so much scared of them as I was annoyed with them. It just really bothered me that they kept getting into the house. But from what I understand, they only need a hole about the size of a quarter to get in. They can. Okay. Thanks, Bill. You're in. really encouraging me. Well, that makes me think of a spider story. I was visiting my brother who lived in London, and there were um, vines growing up on the house next door to him. And one night I woke up and I turned on the light because I was in an unfamiliar place. And there was a spider, a big black spider, the size of a, a saucer, Oof. okay, above me on the ceiling, Daniel, yes. Mm. And I was so terrified that I could never go back to sleep. I sat staring at the ceiling in a different room. Yeah. Well, now we're all going to, we're all going to sleep better tonight, guys. Aren't we? <laughs> yeah. yeah, this is so helpful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we've shared a lot of experiences that are scary and legitimate But I also think of those who the reason they're scared of the dark is because really bad things have happened to them in the dark, whether it's Mm, abuse or something like that. And I do think it's worth just pausing for a moment to Mm -hmm. anybody that hears that in this. um, I'm really sorry for those experiences that you've had that are very different than 
a young child being scared of a wolf or something yeah. like that. Or bats that's, or that's spiders. Important. That's yes. important, Daniel. Thanks yeah. for yeah. Thank that you, for Daniel. Us. Yeah. But yeah. what's interesting is in this next I have come statement from Jesus, we're going to see him talk about light. And so it was the reason I started by talking about darkness, because Jesus is going to say that in the context of talking about darkness. Mm -hmm. And so let's look at that. It's John chapter 12, verses 44 through 46. Mark, could you read that for us? Sure. Uh, We read, then Jesus cried out, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Hmm. It sounds a little bit like spit and image from our other conversation. Whoever sees me sees him who sent me. Yeah, exactly. It builds right off our last conversation of Mm -hmm. Jesus came to represent the Father, but he also came to do what? He came to bring light into the world so that everyone who believes won't be in the darkness, won't remain in the darkness. Mm. That's powerful. Yeah, it sure is. Now, this comes in the context of John chapter 12. What happens in John chapter 12? Where does the story start in this chapter? Well, Mary anoints Jesus Mm -hmm. at the home of Lazarus in Bethany, and this is prior to his crucifixion, of course, yep. but she anoints his body with oil. But also it includes the triumphal entry at the beginning of the yep. chapter, right? Yep. And there's also a plot to kill Lazarus because Jesus had raised him from the dead. And too many people are believing in Jesus as a result of that miracle. And so they've decided that, you know what, we probably need to kill Lazarus. So we have a Mary anointing Jesus, this plot to kill Lazarus, Jesus' triumphal entry, Jesus predicting his death, all coming in this passage where he reveals himself as the light. It's interesting, Mart, in an earlier conversation, you said they're asking for a sign about bread, and he had just given them bread. What's wrong with them? Why can't they get it here? He just raised somebody from the dead, and they want to kill that person rather than believe what they're seeing in front of their eyes. It, It just, again, how hard our hearts can be when we choose to reject. There's a real pattern there. Yeah. Yeah, there is. And maybe that's part of the definition of darkness that Jesus is leaning mm-hmm. on that's is good, when our yeah. when we are so lost in the dark. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When things are that dark in our lives, sometimes we really can't see the truth and we need Jesus to turn the light on yeah. for us mm-hmm. to see it. So we already read verses 44 through 46 where he says he's come to turn the light on. But he actually talks about light a little earlier in the passage, too. Could somebody read verses 35 and 36 for us in chapter 12? Sure. Then Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where he's going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. Hmm. Yeah. Light's used a lot of times in a very small number of verses. Mm -hmm. What is the light representing in this passage? Well, really himself and the understanding, the recognition of who he is and why he came, you know, why he came. I have come too. Yeah. And the opposite of the darkness that is all around him. Mm -hmm. And if we think about in the Bible, the word light is used pretty often as a metaphor, but so is darkness. And what is darkness often a metaphor for throughout scripture? Well, like, you know, evil and dark deeds, sin. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Confusion about God, separation Mm -hmm. from God, being lost, lies are sometimes referred to as darkness, the work of the enemy referred to as darkness. So this word darkness is pregnant with so many different ideas coming into it. And so when Jesus is talking about turning the light on, what is he saying? He's confronting that. Yes, and and offering another option (laughs) besides sin, besides evil, besides being lost. And going back to where we were just talking about a second ago about them rejecting Jesus, verse 37, although he had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe in him. And so again, this darkness not only includes all of those other metaphors, but it includes even just this ultimate rejection of who Jesus is which is surprising in this passage because of all people in the world who should understand who Jesus is and get it, those are the ones that are rejecting him, which I think pushes all of us as well, those of us who think we understand who God really is, 
it forces us to have some humility too. Because if we were in this story, we would probably be the ones in the rejecting him camp because mm-hmm. we're also the ones that feel like we have such a good understanding of who God is. And that's challenging to me. Yeah, no matter how messed up our life was, we would think that we were in the light. Yes. Yeah. I mean, these people don't think they're in the dark. Yeah. So now I do want to throw one caveat in there though, and that is not everyone rejects him. One of the fascinating verses that I see in this chapter is chapter 12, verse 42. Listen to these words. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believe in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess it for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. What are the consequences of being put out of the synagogue in this culture? Loss of all social life, business opportunities, relationship, everything's focused on synagogue. And if you were put out of the synagogue, you were a true outcast. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So before we throw everybody into the bucket of rejecting Jesus, there are many that do believe in him, some of whom are willing to say it and some who in this passage, we don't know who they are because they kind of kept it to themselves, which makes you wonder, like, how did John hear about them later? Did they join the church later? And then they were sharing this story or something, probably something like that, which is kind of fun to think about. But as we kind of draw this conversation to a close and think about it in light of what we've already seen, these I have come to statements from Jesus, Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament story of the law and the prophets. He came to become a friend to sinners. He came to reveal the heart of his father. And in this section, he came to push back against the darkness and to turn the light on, to push away fear and to rescue us from a very dark world. That's one of the reasons that Jesus came. You're listening to Discover the Word, and you're at the table with Mark DeHaan, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day. As the team explores some of the ways that Jesus himself answered the question, why did Jesus come? And from what he said there in John 12, he came to turn the light on. Well, one more segment of the conversation to go, and in that one, Daniel will take us to the I came to statement of Jesus that is the first one that came to Daniel's mind when he thought about doing this study. It's a strong statement he made to Pontius Pilate when he was on trial just before his crucifixion. Why did Jesus come? We'll we'll conclude this conversation after we peek ahead to what the group will be studying together next time. When I mention the disciples of Jesus, what names come to mind? Just roll off your tongue. Matthew, Mark, Luke. A little bit louder. Wait, that's Gospels. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, you think of Peter, Uh, James and John, mm -hmm. Judas. Judas. Mm -hmm. Have we said Andrew yet? No. Okay, what about these names? What about Salome, Joanna, Susanna? It's funny how we think about immediately when we say disciples, we jump to the 12. And it's clear that in the 12, we know this, there were no women. Jesus did not pick a woman to be among that group. But women are included as disciples throughout different passages. In fact, there's no doubt that you see women as learners, followers, Mm. disciples Mm. in the work and the earthly ministry of Jesus. And so next time, we're going to look at some of those women and their roles in the work of Jesus. Be part of our next study, The Roles of Women in the Work of Jesus, on our next Discover the Word podcast. All right, let's do a little review, and then let's go to that last strong statement about why Jesus came. We started this series with the question, why did Jesus come? And we each gave some answers. Now that we're getting into the last conversation of our time together, I want to ask the same question, but this time I think we might fill it in a little differently. So fill in the blank. Jesus came to... Yeah, he said he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And uh, the pop for there, the discovery for me, was when you took us back and reminded us that it also said, and the prophets, because... We had all landed on law, but by fulfilling the law and the prophets, he was fulfilling the point of the Old Testament story. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. The point of the story. Mm-hmm. What it all meant. Yeah. 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 Exactly. What else? Jesus came to? He came to be friends with sinners. And we talked about, you know, who 
would we think Jesus would be least likely to hang out with? And, you know, it's tempting to start pointing fingers and coming up with various scenarios. But the reality is that he hung out with Matthew, who was a tax collector and an ethical and a sinner. And he hung out Mm -hmm. with all kinds of people like that. And the reality is he hangs out with us as well, you know, whether we want to admit it or not. Um, we also are broken humans who desperately need help. And Jesus isn't surprised nor uncomfortable in such a setting. In fact, he dives right in. Yeah. And the amazing thing about the whole story is that in the end, those religious leaders who didn't see themselves that way were the ones who demanded his death, his crucifixion. Yeah. Yeah. He also came to reveal the heart of the Father by working in perfect Mm -hmm. harmony with the Father and his purposes. Yep. That got a few people to be upset. The very face of God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Came to turn on the light. Yeah. yeah. And what did that mean? We kind of unpacked that in the last conversation. Just an understanding that we, well, we talked about how we're afraid of the dark and, and God's <laughs> light uh, removes darkness, but darkness is also a condition of our hearts, you know, of our understanding where we're lost. We don't find meaning where we don't have peace. And and Jesus came to turn the light on in those situations in our life. Maybe they're emotional, maybe they're physical to bring light into our world. You know, Daniel, this whole conversation has been so rich because I know my tendency is to often go to scripture and I'll read the words, literal words in this setting. And I might pop out to the, you know, the chapter and what's happening there in the context but these conversations we've had about, you know, why did Jesus come and what did he say and putting them all together reveals the arc of mm-hmm. the story. It reveals such a beautiful, holistic view of who God is and why Jesus came. Yeah, and it's yeah. so provocative, too, because, you know, the, what we find out is those who don't think they're sinners really are the sinners for whom we came. Those mm-hmm. who think they're in the light are mm-hmm. so often in the dark, and yeah. yet it's Jesus himself who's helping us to see where we are. Yeah, and I think not only do I see myself in the dark and as a sinner as a result of this, but the really good news is, is so often we say things like, Jesus came to save sinners, which mm-hmm. is true, mm-hmm. right? It's true that Jesus did that. But when it's nuanced by Jesus as, no, I came to be a friend of sinners mm-hmm. and saving them as a part of that friendship. Uh-huh. That makes me feel so much differently than the other way around. Mm. I don't know if you feel that, but for me, I think that's been maybe the most life-giving part of this series for me is it's, no, Jesus isn't just coming to save me from sin as if I'm this like unworthy, evil creature thing that he can't look on until he dies and rises again. Even if it's true that I'm broken and sinful, it's, no, no, I came to get to know you, to be with you, to be a friend of yours. Yes, to rescue you. That's a huge part and an important part of the story, but so that there's a relationship there, so that there's a friendship there. And that to me is the the thing that I'll be taking from this. And that's good. It really warms it up. I'm with you. Yeah. But we still have one more conversation. Mm-hmm. So we're going to look at one more I have come statement. And I wonder, I bet there's some people that are in our audience who this was probably the first one that came to mind <laughs> because this one we've heard a few times before. We're still in the Gospel of John, John chapter 18, verse 37. The language is a little different. So he doesn't say I have come to, but we'll still see the words for this I came into the world. So it's still the same intonation there. And when I think of Jesus' statements of himself, of why he came, this is the first one that typically comes to my mind. And I think of it as a pretty strong statement from Jesus. And I think you'll see why as we read it. So let's go ahead and read it. John 18, verse 37. Bill, will you get that for us? Sure. This is when Jesus is on trial before Pilate, right? Yep. Pilate asked him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to truth listens to my voice. Do you feel the strength in that response? Because it's like so much more exhaustive than just saying I have come to. It's like, for this I was born, for this reason Mm -hmm. I came into the world to testify to the truth. Hmm. So, Mm -hmm. Bill, you mentioned the context for this. Already, Jesus has been betrayed by a really close friend, Judas, whom he loved. Jesus has already been disowned by another really close friend, Peter, whom Jesus loved. Jesus had been questioned by the leaders of his own people at this point. So his own people have questioned him. The high priest, 
Caiaphas is mentioned earlier in the story as the one who said that it would be better for one man, Jesus, to die to save Israel from the Romans. So all of this betrayal, all this disowning by Jesus's own people, like his people, Mm-hmm. to me just makes this context so weighty. Mm-hmm. And as Bill mentioned, he's now before Pilate. So let's just talk through the scene a little bit. What happens as Jesus is before Pilate? You know, the thing that hit me is there's that question. Pilate asks him a direct question, right? Yeah. And Jesus seems somewhat evasive mm-hmm. in his response. Is that the way you hear it too or not? Absolutely. Yeah. So they're trying to talk about this kingdom language that Jesus has used. And I think what Pilate is looking for is if Jesus says clearly, mm-hmm. yes, I am a king, then that becomes a direct threat to mm-hmm. Rome and it makes Pilate's job a whole lot easier because, uh. yeah, we need to get rid of Jesus because he's trying to have an insurrection. So what does Jesus mean when he says these words? You say it. You well, say he's I'm not denying that he's a king. Mm-hmm. He's just responding by giving Pilate's words back to him. I'm not the one saying this. You're the one saying this. But at the same time, he's not denying that he's a king. Yeah. Okay. And so as this kind of builds on all the stuff that we've been talking about, it kind of feels appropriate to talk about this one here at the end of this conversation, because Mm. what is this truth that Jesus is testifying to? Well, he himself is the truth. I mean, he said that in John 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. True. And he's the (laughs) fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Mm -hmm. He's the friend of sinners. He's the truth about who the Father is. He's the Mm -hmm. truth of who the Father is. Well, what does that mean, he's the truth? It sounds kind of abstract, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. I think so. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know, Mark. What do you think that means here? I think he's saying he's true to something, Mm -hmm. right? And he's been explaining he's being true to the Father. He's mirroring back before the people the very nature of his Father. And I wonder if some of those other pieces are what kind of helps us flesh that out. So if Mm -hmm. he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, the Old Testament story, well, there's a lot of confusion about what is the Old Testament really about and what Mm -hmm. should we apply and what shouldn't we apply or should we apply at all? Or what is the story talking about and who really is rescued? Who's not rescued? What is God like? Who is he like? What does he do? All of those are questions that come out of the Old Testament And so by Jesus even making a statement like, I've come to fulfill that story, to be the very face of God, to be a friend of sinners, it almost feels like what Jesus is doing is embodying the real story Mm -hmm. and giving us what the truth is. And maybe that's what he means when he says, I am the truth, is he's actually showing us with his life and his teachings what the truth is. Well, it's consistent with the rest of the verse. For this I was born, for this I came into the world to testify. Yeah. And then the way ends, everyone who belongs to the truth Mm -hmm. listens to my voice. And that's probably the heart behind this, Mm -hmm. right? There's those of us that proclaim what, quote unquote, what we think is truth for the purpose of showing that we're right and others are wrong. And then there's those like Jesus who declare the truth for the purpose of inviting other people into experiencing the truth. And I see that here too. I think what you're saying is exactly right, Daniel. Yeah. You know, it's hard for us to imagine, but you said Judas betrayed Jesus and Jesus loved him. Uh Peter denied Jesus and Jesus loved him. Pilate's getting ready to order his execution, but Jesus loves him too. And by answering the way he is, he's welcoming Pilate to come into the kind of truth relationship that he's been offering. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And true to his father's heart, faithful yeah. to what he's been called mm-hmm. to come into the world to do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, one of the other things that we've talked about in each one of these examples is that oftentimes Jesus' declaration of I have come comes with rejection afterwards. What happens yeah. immediately after Jesus says, I've come to testify to the truth, and everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. What happens next? Give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. And Pilate releases Barabbas. Jesus is sentenced to death. And if we think about Jesus' statements of, I have come to da-da-da-da-da, and all the ways that we fill that (laughs) in, another way that we could say this is the one who came to fulfill the law and the prophets was sentenced to death. The friend of sinners was sentenced to death. The spitting image of God was sentenced to death. The light was to be put out. The truth 
was to be hidden in a grave. But, and all caps on that, B-U-T, all capitals, (laughs) Jesus (laughs) rose again, which is how the story comes to that climactic conclusion. And Jesus finishes the work of coming to fulfill the law and the prophets, of being the true friend of sinners, of revealing the sacrificial, merciful, loving heart of God, of permanently turning on the light of truth in the world, and ultimately embodying that truth of God's love and mercy. And it's for at least those reasons that Jesus came into the world. This has been a great series of conversations about why Jesus came here on Discover the Word. Thanks, Daniel, for summarizing so well there what we found and the significance of knowing why Jesus said he came. You're at the table with Mark DeHaan, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day as they wrap up this study called Why Did Jesus Come? Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. Now at Discover the Word and Our Daily Bread Ministries, we've been providing for decades content freely available in print and audio and video and on our website because of friends like you who voluntarily give in support of this ministry. Our focus is always to make the life-changing story and wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to people all around the world. And we're grateful for financial gifts from friends like you who make that possible. If you'd like to partner with us, you can give a donation of any amount when you go online to our discovertheword.org website and click donate. thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hedinga. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.